visit the Downtown Den, join us through our website, all the W's, downtowninbusiness.com. Stay in, stay safe, visit the Downtown Den. Hi, good afternoon. This is Paul Cadman uh, in downtown, in business, in the den. Obviously, we're, during these unprecedented circumstances, we're all working from home and things like that. Just putting a Zoom call together. It's uh, the charities that are shaping Birmingham. We haven't had the opportunity of including every charity. Obviously, we would like to do that. But we put together four leaders of four charities. And in no particular order, we have Tim Andrews representing Love Brom. We have Tina Swanee representing to Mary's Hospice, Carly Jones representing Cypher Fireside, and of course, last but not least, Toby Porter representing, uh, representing Acorns Children's Hospice. Toby, if we can just start off with you, if you can take a minute or two, just introduce yourself, um, and I think pretty much all of the people that are watching now obviously know you but if you just take a minute or two and just tell us what's been happening over the last few weeks to you your team and the hospice please uh, thank you paul um and uh, really delighted thank you for giving us the platform to talk about the opportunities and the challenges for Brum's charities right now it's been obviously a, a like a lot of people we've been i think the crux of the dilemma for charities is that we've been critically concerned about the children and the families that we're supporting at Acorns. We support very poorly children and families, very early to shield, very concerned about the, what would happen to their children if they caught the coronavirus, etc. So we're seeing a big spike in demand at a time where we've obviously also, from a business perspective, had the biggest shock to the charity business model that you could ever have imagined um, with charity shops shut all business events corporate donations a lot of community fundraising down substantially down all major events like sunday's marathon uh cancelled etc and i think that the heart of the dilemma for leaders and trustees in the charity sector is dealing with a spike in demand and an absolute trough in income. And, and uh, I would say that that has been incredible. Wonderful, wonderful. Thanks for the introduction. Tina, do you want to pick up just with an introduction of you and what you've been up to over the last few weeks and you know, how it's impacted on your team and your charity as a whole, please? Um, well, one thing is that this has been a devastating time for people patients, families, anyone that has a loved one that is ill or nearing the end of life, um, it is terrible to be separated. So one thing that um, we've done, and also everything that Toby says, you know, money drying up because we can't do the fundraising that we were doing. But what I am so proud of is the way the hospices, the adult hospices of Birmingham and Solly Hall have come together. So Marie Curie, John Taylor, Birmingham St Mary's, we've pulled together to form a one number uh, service called HOBS, Hospices of Birmingham and Solihull, um, so that we recognise that any one of us could end up short-staffed because of um, staff being right in the thick of coronavirus. We are nursing people who 
have got COVID-19, um, whether that's at home or in the hospices. Um, so we wanted to build our own resilience and be there for people at this terrible time. And so we've got one number between us with community nursing. We've pulled all our uh, nursing staff, medical team, occupational therapists, social workers. We all work as one now from um, our hub based at John Taylor Hospice. And I'm so proud that we can now provide a service from one number 24 seven, seven days a week. And our phone lines have never been so busy. So we know that it's needed. And, and it also reassures those that are still supporting us with the virtual events that we're making our money go as far as it possibly can. So, amazing, amazing work. Okay. Carly, welcome. Good afternoon. Same questions to you. How are you? How's the staff? And uh, what immediate changes and what's happened over the last few weeks? If you can give us a bit of an update, that would be wonderful, please. Hi, Paul. Hi, everybody. Yeah, thanks very much for having uh, having me on to and, and for this platform. Like others have said, it's great. Um, I think in terms of Cypher Fireside, the big issue um, for us really has been that uh, about four weeks ago, um, obviously, we had to close our drop-in service, uh, which was seeing about 160 people um, every day. And the absolute um, critical shift that we really had to make in terms of the service provision from people coming to our centrally based location uh, to how do we now support people um, when, they, when they can't come in to access our practical support services like the showers and food and clothing and things like that. And also the fact that even though Birmingham has done a tremendous amount of work in accommodating um, almost all of our rough sleepers during this period of time, the level of vulnerability that they continue to face and how, how we address that. So we had to very rapidly transform our model into much more telephone-based support, uh, doing safe and well checks with people. We are still doing some outreach as well. Um, in fact, this morning we actually went out to somebody's makeshift camp uh, because they've been attacked last night. So the, the need and the critical um, vitalness of our services is still very much there. Uh, we are retaining a skeleton staff in our building because people are still coming to us in, in mm. desperate need of help. So um, yeah, it's been, it's been a big change. And obviously for the staff, um, as I'm sure others would echo, they've just had to get on with it and pull their sleeves up. And they've done it absolutely just unbelievably well and the level of resilience that we're seeing among our staff's team is just um, outstanding really um, but also okay. I just wanted to echo what Tina was sort of saying um, uh, about in terms of the, the hospice context but also across the board I think our reflection would be the level of collaboration that we have seen recently uh, you know it's it's beyond compare and actually there's been some really rapid system change that has happened in areas where we've been battling these things for quite a long period of time and now suddenly we have created that that change within our systems and our hope is that there's a there's a bit of a legacy potentially that can be left as a result of this that might be very positive as well excellent excellent we'll come back to a number of points there that all three of you raised tim good afternoon yep. welcome good afternoon. um as chairman and founder of love bump you're regarded by me and, and, and correct me if, if i'm not wrong as the overarching charity that's sort of yeah. supporting many smaller charities initiatives and incentives 
throughout the city and wider. Although you love Brum, you do go a little bit further than that and things like that. And it's yeah. one of the things that we want to talk about, the, the one Brum sort of initiative that you're kicking off. But if you just give us a bit of an update of what you've been up to, your team have been up to over the yeah. last few weeks, that would be wonderful. Yeah, again, again, thank you for the opportunity to... Uh... Uh, for this platform. Um, I see the uh, participants uh, numbers clocking up on the screen. So it's good to see. Um, And it's such an interesting and also important time for for charities. Um, As you say, we are an umbrella charity. We raise money for smaller organisations. And I think, you know, one thing that has struck home to me during this COVID uh, crisis, um, you know, the, the huge amount of charitable support for, you know, from, from the community and back to the community, um, you know, it's been quite amazing. Um, what I would say, uh, and, and then they, they deserve every single penny, but a lot of that money has got, been going to the NHS. And of course, there's lots of charities, um, you know, that are doing equally good work. And as, as you've just heard, um, I, you know, my plea really to, to really Birmingham and the wider communities, you know, there are still loads, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of charities out there that still need that support. And of course, the COVID situation has really sort of struck home that. And then, and the three people preceding me, um, you know, their stories, you know, I, I, I just can't imagine, you know, the, the, well, I can from my business point of view, cause we're going through similar challenges, but, but from a mm. charitable point of view, um, it, you know, it's, it's, it's really quite heart wrenching to see that happening here in, here in the city. Um, and God hope, um, you know, we all get back to normal as quick as possible. Um, and, and we don't see, you know, lots of charities falling by the wayside because they, they are doing some awesome, awesome things. All being well. Can you talk us about the, the initiative, the One Brum? What's yeah, the mindset um, behind that? How does that work and how can we all get involved? Yeah, well, the, the driver behind it uh, initially um, is, you know, we, we felt that, um, again, really backing on what I was just saying, there's charities out there that are still doing work. and They still... Um, but but there was there's a, a collaboration of projects coming together to to help families and people that are suffering through the COVID crisis. Uh, so hashtag One Brum is all about Birmingham coming together. Um, you know we were just asking for a pound donation from 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 the Birmingham public, and then that money will be channeled into projects that are you know that are helping families and people suffering through the the uh, the COVID. Uh, crisis we've, we've chosen four projects at this moment in time and basically we uh, many people that 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 sort of follow love Brum, we we do a charity each week uh, uh you know and they're very small the important thing to remember is they're volunteer-led organizations they're volunteer projects so you know whilst we're not raising millions of pounds um you know e- even two thousand pounds goes such a long way for the small charities um, and you won't believe the, the sort of the impact. And we are doing some work on that at the moment. We're, we're, we're make, we're, we've got uh, some volunteers doing some videos, going back into the causes, doing telephone interviews. Uh, so we will be releasing soon so the impact that, that Love Brum is having. Um, <clears throat> but it is, uh, you know, just, just something up really based on what I was just saying, that, you know, the collaboration. And certainly this is a great platform and this demonstrates the collaboration that's going on in the city. Uh, but we just want more... Birmingham people to get behind the campaign. It's not a lot of money uh, we're asking for, and you know we appreciate that that families are struggling in this in this time. Um, but we just want to put money into the into the uh, into the so heart of the city. So it's simply asking for a pound per person in the city that comes 100%. into Love Brom that Love Brom can distribute that as you know as and when needed across yeah. the city. But it's replacing the initial uh, the weekly fundraiser that we do. 
Um, so we were adapting to the COVID crisis, you know, and there's no more yeah. better time to, you know, to really focus and help the families in the Birmingham area that, that are suffering from, from uh, COVID-related um, issues. Okay, thank you very much for that. That's fantastic. We'll definitely come back to you. Toby, just looking at some of the changes that uh, uh, Acorns has made over the last few weeks, you've been very agile and there's been some updates and things like that. And some of the hospices have been closed and just been used for different purposes and things like that. Can you just give us an update where you are regarding that, please? Yeah, so what we, um, what we did is we started the plan with, I suppose, two overarching objectives, which is how could we continue to support the children and families who depend on children, ACORN's children's hospice care at any time. But also, secondly, how could we support the wider NHS emergency response effort? So what we uh, did, we repurposed our Walsall hospice, the Black Country hospice, to take some of the poorest children who uh, are long-term residents or stayers in Birmingham Children's Hospital and mm -hmm. uh, other hospitals like Wolverhampton and Walsall in the region. So the idea that by us taking a, a child who would be in intensive care but stable long-term, yeah. free up intensive care capability. And then our Worcester Hospice, we dedicated it to social emergencies, to care for children who meet our medical criteria, but who don't have homes, who aren't able to be at home, perhaps for safeguarding reasons, or perhaps they don't have a home to go for because fostering arrangements have fallen through or they're not able to live with their parents, etc. And then we also, as Tina would have been as well, one of the things which I could have mentioned in my last answer about one of the things you had to plan on was a, was a higher, far higher than normal sickness absence rate. So we soon realized, mm -hmm. that, you know, it was initially about 20, 25%, wasn't it, Tina, at the end of March in terms of uh, people who were self-isolating on the basic criteria given by the government in terms of... And so we knew that if we tried to keep all our three hospices open, we'd probably end up not being able to adequately staff any of them. So we, we temporarily and said, look, if anyone else in the healthcare world in Birmingham, if the QEH are just over the hill, if it, if it needs excess capacity to care for people or to have somewhere for doctors and nurses to sleep, if they're not able to go to their own homes because of infection fears, etc., so that was how we that was how we planned it and it has been flexible but what i would say is that we need to be flexible again because you know i've worked actually in emergency planning most of my professional life i used to do things like tsunami response and earthquake response and uh working in conflict like kosovo and rwanda and you know when you it's always good to set clear objectives even in the thick of a emergency to guide what you're trying to do but you have got to be prepared to revisit them very quickly and I think now, the, now that it seems clear that the first wave has peaked and that the NHS capability hasn't been overwhelmed I think it's incumbent on healthcare charities like Acorns and St Mary's to say okay so it was right for the last month to be part of the uh, effort to create excess capability 
in the NHS system. But now that that uh, capability hasn't been needed, we then have to look again. Because obviously we all hope there won't be a second wave at all, but if there does come one, it shouldn't come for some time if they manage the easing of restrictions uh, correctly. So we have to think of how do we re-evolve our service again so your 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 work planning is never finished um is that is that the same for you tina uh it is and i think the one thing um listen to what you're saying toby is um because the way that we set this hobbs service up the hospices are all coming together um We've been planning, we, we, we've been de developing a plan for about two years. So this is across the NHS, hospices, um, local authority, ambulance service. We've developed a plan across Birmingham and Solihull for palliative and end-of-life care that's been agreed and signed up to by all the major organisations. Now, I think what's happened during that planning phase is the relationships have been strengthened. So as soon as we hit the crisis, a plan that had taken 18 months to come to agreement and fruition literally took about six days to implement. Within a fortnight, the whole system, the, the, the control centre, if you like, that's, that's staffed by very experienced staff, occupational therapist nurses, was set up within that fortnight. We went, um, it was launched on the 6th of April and it was 8, 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. And this is staff changing their working patterns, changing their working practice. And then within, by the bank holiday weekends, within five days, we'd gone 24-7. And that doesn't just happen like that because of a crisis. It's because we've all worked together across different organisations, got used to the idea that we're working as one, that when crisis hits, you've got that flexibility and goodwill and it's not, oh, we do this this way or we do that that way. It's, okay, you do that, you do that. How can we make it work together? And those accelerated conversations in crisis are so important. What we want to do now is look at what you're saying is recovery and restoration um, so that what are we going to grab from what we've done that we should have, you know, I'm saying we, we're doing all this. It's like Carly said, we're putting in place system-wide changes we should have done two years ago. And it's taken this awful, awful crisis to knock our heads together and get it put in double quick. So we've really got to work out what's it going to look like when we come out of this, because there won't be a normal, it will be a different normal. And, and that's exactly, I don't know what it'll look like, but I, I hope we hob stays because that collaborative entity is really important and it's helping people. It's helping us reach more people right now in the middle of the crisis who would be at a loss. And the most traumatic, tragic thing is to be diagnosed with an illness or find you've got nowhere to turn. And there's that one number. Shall I read the number out just in case anybody's listening? Yeah, um, yeah and I think and we, we can keep repeating that number throughout yeah. the call and we can post it, you know, online for you as well, Tina, and things like that. But Go on, repeat the number out for it's us. It's really for referrers because I know there's doctors out there and, uh, you know, it's it's ha a happy, healthy Ramadan to everybody that's listening as well because it is <clears> that time of contemplation, isn't it? But it's it's a number where um, our own patients can, can access and it's also one uh, for referrers and that's 0121, so a Brummie number, um, 
1900. No significant with the number. It was just that one that was available, or is it? I, I tell available? you what. I tell you what. Yes, I was involved in all the strategic planning. I went away to the Caribbean, so the implementation was absolutely zilch to do with me. The clinicians, okay. the back office staff, got on and did it, and that's what I'm so proud of. So, okay, yeah, so I don't, history that so, hops maybe because hospices of Birmingham and Solihull, but I think the lead nurse likes hobnobs. So I think that's probably probably influenced that. Okay, brilliant. Thanks, Tina. Thanks, Toby, for leading the uh, the question as well. I think for the for for the perspective of us, and just to clarify for the listeners as well, just what government support have we had? So I'm asking two questions. Well, one question with two points. What have we had nationally, and what have we had locally? So, Carly, do you want to lead on that for us first? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think um, there's been a there has been a fair amount of um, support for the homelessness sector specifically, uh, both yeah. from central government and locally. Um, I think in terms of getting people accommodated, Birmingham moved very very quickly to ensure that all of our rough sleepers had somewhere to stay and without going into all the technicalities of different uh, criteria and things like that there are groups of people that ordinarily without a route to employment do not get access to any statutory homelessness support now yeah. all of those people because of uh, this public health crisis have, have, have been accommodated so in that sense you know, from central government and from local government, it has been um, it has been very quick and it has been quite effective. Um, I think that there is still more support that's needed, particularly for the voluntary sector, um, in terms of direction and guidance. Um, I've got to be honest and say we did feel, in terms of day centres in particular, that the public health guidance that came through was um, was fairly limited and we did struggle a little bit in the early days to understand exactly and have some really clear guidance on what was happening um, and then financially in terms of uh, sort of business continuity and things like that our uh, commission services have all been protected uh, which we were we, we were very relieved about because obviously that gave us uh, some stability in terms of our planning and we've been able to redeploy and use staff in other ways without um, you know being being very concerned about what that means for our contracted services as well so um so yeah overall like, i do think I, th I think you know there's a lot that we could say about messaging from central government but in terms of mobilization in birmingham i do think there's been a lot of activity particularly around homelessness i think that uh, birmingham council combined authority have come together quite well locally to deliver support I think one of the questions that's going to be on everybody's mind is if we've managed to support majority of all the homeless now, Carly, why can't we do that permanently? Why can't we really help these people who are struggling homeless with homelessness and, and the complex problems and just put our arms around them and pick them up as a city and put them and give them somewhere to live? Why can't we do that permanently? I think that's a really great question, Paul, and I think that's where where we are at the moment and where a lot of our partner organisations 
organisations are, is we are now having those conversations about, well, what happens next? Because we don't want to see when all of this is over, that suddenly all those people that we've done some great work with, because they got we got them indoors during this period, that just ends and they're back to square one. So now is the time for us to be continuing that conversation to say, well, actually, why can't we continue to do this? Because we found this an almost insurmountable task previously and this experience has told us that it's not insurmountable and it can be done but it does need resourcing and it needs resourcing properly and that's always where we get into the the challenging territory really so I think there's got to be a commitment long term to saying actually we can solve this but we need to resource it properly. Let's take that away as a positive that during these uh, circumstances, unfortunate circumstances, positive is, is that we have done it, we can do it, and we need to challenge local and national government to ensure that that's the, the status quo going forward. Toby, just to you, same questions. What support have you had from local government and national government? Are you happy with it? You, obviously, you think that things are going to improve. That's the situation we're in. But has there been enough support locally and nationally, do you think? Um, I think it's a, it's a mixed picture for charities. But I think Tina and I would be the first to acknowledge that the hospice sector has been exceptionally well helped. So you'll remember that for the first month after the crisis, there was a lot of, we had the furloughing scheme, we had the help for self-employed and, you know, more and more the tempo was being raised on social media about what about charities, what about charities. Mm -hmm. and, uh, two weeks ago, yesterday, I think, the Chancellor Sunak announced a £700 million package of support <clears throat> with three main areas of earmarking one to help specifically smaller charities so that would be some of the ones that tim and love brum help um and secondly um to endow one of the national lottery grant making um bodies with a i think a couple of hundred million pounds and then finally a dedicated 200 million pound package for uh the uh, for the country's hospices who many of whom many of us let's be honest would have had to dramatically reduce staff first and then possibly even shut altogether because sure. in a million years would we have planned for a scenario where all our shops are shut for three months all our events are cancelled all of our community fundraising is is ground to a halt i mean it, it, you would never have imagined this scenario until until it happened so I think, I feel that uh, national government has been very responsive for charities, although I'm very conscious that there are charities that almost every charity outside of the hospice sector would be looking at the help we've got and be rather saying, well, I wish they'd helped us like that. But um, what I would say is from policy perspective, the one regret I have is that I think that um, I wish the Treasury had found a way to allow charities to furlough staff, but given charities the flexibility perhaps of allowing, say, up to 50% of their workforce to be furloughed, but to re-volunteer for the same charity. Because I think in the end, too many charities have had to choose between financial survival by furloughing staff. And as a 
furloughing staff because most charities tend to be led, services tend to be led by people. They're not things we give their, their care, their support, their mental health counselling, their etc. And I think that when they come to scrub this up, what would it really have cost the Treasury to have allowed charities an exemption to what I understand the scheme as a whole is an important one, that if you were furloughed and claiming your salary back from the government, you shouldn't be giving, working for the company that's furloughing. And I do understand that general point, but I, I feel that there was the intelligence and the evidence out there to realise that there are ways in which you could have found a way for charities to have furloughed their staff, because we are all legally registered charities, so it's very easy to track who's a charity and who isn't. And then for us to have, had, because I know a lot of our staff, we've, we've furloughed a lot of staff, not on the care side, but on the non-care side. They would be desperate to still be working, but it, in the end it was a commercial decision that we had to prioritise stemming the financial loss. I think uh, so. What I'm what I'm hearing is that you're, you're reasonably happy for the care sector and for the hospices for the support from the government, local government, things like that. Reasonably happy. Could be better. <laughs> and I'm seeing Tina, who's gonna who's gonna answer the same question next. However, one of the aspects are the furloughed staff. If you can have a specific exemption for the charitable sector. That might be beneficial for, for you, for your support and for the charities and for the wider, you know, society that you support. And maybe we can take that forward. Now, I know Tina's jumping in a bit to answer this question, but let's go to Tim first. Tim, as, uh, as an outsider, as a business leader, as well as somebody that's involved in the charity, do you think the government is doing enough at uh, local government level and national level to support charities, specifically the Birmingham charities? Well, uh, first and foremost, Love Brum hasn't been um, supported. We don't qualify for, uh, and that's the same story for, for my business, other than the furlough scheme. You know, without the furlough scheme in my business, we wouldn't, you know, we wouldn't get through this. Um, we've, uh, we've taken, uh, through Love Brum, we've, uh, we've furloughed just one member of staff. Um, but the biggest issue for Love Brum, really, in terms of income, uh, and it's not so, so we, our charity, our, our charity model, if you like, all our running costs are paid for by sponsorship, corporate sponsorship. Um, so that that enables us to promise every single penny that we raise goes through to the causes. Now, of course, every business in the city uh, is suffering financially. So, of course, our, our patron packages that we sell, our sponsorship packages that we sell, you know, we are struggling um, with the take up and, and people are struggling to pay as well. So, so our income has been affected by that. But of course, we don't really qualify for any of the criteria because we're not actually a service delivery ourselves um mm. but the furlough scheme has been a bit of a, a bit of a lifesaver certainly for for hollywood monster um yeah uh, in terms of the government are they doing enough i think uh, i'm certainly not going to jump on the bandwagon of, of slating the government because i think on the whole they've done a very good job uh, you have to sort of consider you know they they, they they were fighting brexit only just before christmas and then all of a sudden this has come on top of us um so there, there wasn't a lot of time to plan for this at all um so uh, in terms of how they've gone about supporting businesses, um, I remember the Chancellor, <laughs> I'm not afraid to, uh, to admit it, I actually cried. <laughs> like he, he, he gave out the financial support for the business because it meant that my business may be safe. Um, but there are still a lot, there's still a long way that I think that the, the government needs to support because there are, there are lots of sectors. Me personally, um, I'm a director that pays myself through dividend process. 
Um, I've not had any any financial support. Some people say, well, you can afford it, so don't worry about it. But, you know, we all know the more you earn, the more you spend, the more commitments you make. Um, but 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 there are there are still lots of lots of areas that the the, the government need to uh, need to go. Uh, my business, um, our rate, uh, uh, we pay seventy five thousand pound a year in business rates. Um, we don't qualify because we we got we're over the fifty thousand threshold, and um, we're also in a sector, a manufacturing sector, um, and and you know we that's 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 massive to us. Um, yeah, added that to your rent, that to your uh, your standing charges, your car rentals for your staff. Um, you know, it's hundred to hundred and fifty thousand pound a month overheads um, mm. for my business, and, and it's very difficult to see, you know, how the government can help you pay that. So of course, we're just hoping that the the downturn or the, the sort of the lockdown uh, is kept is kept as short. Did, um, did a did an interview with Ian Ward uh, last week, and I think I sent it to you specifically, Tim. And, and yeah. Ian Ward was quite forthcoming, was open and honest that ninety nine percent of the businesses. You know, in the in the in Birmingham, the SMEs don't really fit into the government portfolio for support. However, Birmingham Council are making specific dispensations to certainly to sort of organisations to do that. So, I mean, that's quite meaningful. And the next thing we'll do is take some of the points that are raised from this discussion today to Ian Ward to see whether he can offer some support for businesses, charities, you know, alike, and things like that going forward. But now, uh, Tina, over to you. Same question. Do you feel as if we're getting enough support nationally and locally from the government? What do you think? I think the government's doing what it can. Um, mm-hmm. but I think it's important to look at the bigger picture here because, um, you know, with, with um, adult palliative care, it's a specialism. We're dealing with people who need very specialist treatments. And um, they're... In Birmingham St Mary's Hospice alone, we would see in a one year about 1,800 individuals, plus their plus their families, loved ones, partners, and um, that in itself, the core service that we're providing. It is palliative care is the only speciality. Unlike you know liver disease, orthopaedics, heart disease, it is the only charity where the core service is predominantly dependent upon charitable giving that is not enough so that's why i might stand as though you know maybe i'm the naysayer here i think in this crisis the government is doing what it can within a short period of time but we've got to remember that whatever support hospices might be given we are all starting from a very very low base and i have been overwhelmed by the support of people like yourselves, Paul, um, and, and, you know, Tim, the work that the Birmingham citizens are doing to support us. Uh, for instance, we're getting people signed up now to, uh, yeah, the London Marathon's cancelled. We, we had places in that, so we're going to lose income. But we've got people now, and, and those out there, join in, please. We're doing what we're calling the 2.6 challenge where you can either run 2.6 kilometres, you can do 26 miles on a bike, you can run the marathon if you want to. But the fact that people are doing virtual challenges to keep raising us money, because the specialism that we provide to a growing number of people, because the, 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 the uh, positive thing is we're all going to live longer, but many of us will be living longer with a larger number of conditions. So there is yeah. a time bomb. There's another crisis coming in the future 
where health and social care can't meet the needs of, of its growing elderly population. So I think it's so important that the government does consider that and look at a proper funding model, not just now, um, but for the future for hospice care, because too many people are going to fall through the net if we don't get a proper proper funding. And also, I think it's it's a brilliant, brilliant to keep that charitable giving going because we can still do more, um, do more with, with the people that are supporting us through voluntary funding and fundraising. Brilliant. I think coming back on that, then we're looking at some of the live questions that, um, that our viewers have put in up. Uh, David Berlin raises the point. Uh, Tim raises the issue of money raised for the NHS. No one would, would begrudge in the slightest the NHS staff and others on the front line deserve all the support they can get at present. But the panellists, are the panellists concerned that the future increased public fundraising for the NHS might impact upon their charities? That sort of thing. So I think what he's trying to say is that the support, the charitable mindset towards in the front, supporting the frontline staff of the NHS, who are doing a, a, a fantastic job, obviously there's only so much money that people will give being directed towards that. Are we concerned that the monies that would normally come to us through various different activities that each you know, of you raised might not be coming through so readily? You know, are we concerned? So, Tim, do you want to pick that one up first yeah, off? Um, I, I, I don't think um, we are concerned that people give money to other charities and not us, certainly not. Um, I don't think the NHS is going to take more money from us going forward. I don't, I don't think that's the case. Um, charitable giving, you know, the, there are tr trends, there are, there are sort of curves um, from, you know, for, for different types of charities. Um, rightly so, the NHS is getting what they're getting at the moment, without a doubt. Um, yeah. I, I think the bigger concern for me is what disposable income people have got going forward. You know, what, how is this COVID crisis? Is it going to affect jobs? I, I, don't, I can't see that it's not going to affect jobs. Um, so people are going to be struggling for money in their own, you know, uh, in, in their own income. So I, I would say that is the bigger danger by far. Um, I actually think I actually applaud all the charitable giving at the moment because charity giving is actually quite infectious gives you a good feeling you know when you're doing work for charity when you're giving money for charity it's amazing you know how how how, how good it does make you feel so actually I'd, you know then you're going to give it to another charity as well you know so i don't think for me personally i don't think that's going to be i don't think that's the drive that's not an issue i think the issue is what people what you know what disposable income income people have got going forwards that is going to be the biggest issue i think and that's all related to the economy excellent so toby uh, same question to you. Are, are you concerned at uh, Acorns about the mindset towards charitable donations? Do you think that's going to decrease, increase? Is it going to focus? Is it going to change? I, I, I agree with um, Tim actually on almost everything he said. It's very complex that people give so much with their heart. And right now, people's hearts are with the NHS. I don't think, you know, if you if you work inside the charity sector, then you 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 know that the money that Captain Tim raised, for example, is not needed, if you like, to financially resource the COVID response. And it's not needed to put PPE on the nurses, etc., because there are limitless NHS direct funding for for that. 
but it will be spent in very good ways uh, across the NHS in in years to come. And I and I just think people are. I, I agree with Tim. If people emotionally, they're just with the NHS at the moment. I do think there's a lesson that charities shouldn't be putting out. Everyone's putting out a kind of if you don't donate to us now, we'll fold. And we've we haven't done that as Acorns. Partly because we've had a recent emergency appeal of our own when we were in financial trouble last year and we were appealing to save our Walsall hospice, but also because I just don't think it would work at the moment. People want something positive to give to, and Captain Tim ticked two massive boxes in that everyone loved him and loved his courage and loved the fact that he was a veteran and loved his dignity and loved his humility and then also people loved the fact that he was raising money for the NHS but I think it but I agree with Tim in that overall charitable giving is likely to be much less over the next two years than it was in the previous two years I think there will be I suspect that people might might move a bit local there's some of the charities that I've worked for in the past, Oxfam, Save the Children, Plan, they're all good charities. I think they'll have a really tough time over the next few years because I think people will be looking much more at their own uh, communities. Um, but, you know, the, the last time there was, you know, the, I've been on the other end of this where in 2004 on Boxing Day, I was emergency director at Save the Children when the tsunami happened. And we thought, the, we knew it was a big emergency at that stage, the biggest charity joint appeal had raised 50 million quid and this one raised 370 million. And I think a lot of you who were already working in local charities, you had a really tough year in 2005 because everybody had given all their money to the tsunami, but it was the emotion, that's where the British public were in 2005. In 2020, right now, they're with the NHS. But I think as long as we give them positive stories to give to and people understand that their money will have a real impact, the one thing that is absolutely as British as the bad weather and as the Yorkshire Sea is the fact that we are very, very, very generous and charitable giving is in the DNA of people as individually in companies in philanthropies in foundations so charities of course will survive but there will be real turbulence before we reach that point toby extremely well put thank you for that i think that uh, if if we're not talking financial support what about you know physical support labor support or your skills and things like that so joe howell head of careers at bcu raises a good point how can university students and graduates, how could they help charities at this time and moving forward? So if we raise that question and ask Carly that, how do you think university students, undergraduates, postgraduates can help now and moving forward? What could they do for you? Uh, I think there's there's a lot of different ways um, that, that university students can get involved and support us um, at the moment and moving forward. So currently, um, we, we are running an emergency appeal. So what, the way we'd ask students to get involved at the moment would be to get to do our big rummy campaign on the 8th of May okay. um, and get involved 
that. But there are other ways as well. I mean, there's things that are non-financial that people can um, can pick up on. So we do still um, need people to support us around donations of uh, food, non-perishable items, and things like that. In the long term, we always need volunteers uh, to be supporting our services, and particularly where students um, are concerned, that can be um, that can be periodic. You know, when they're coming back from uh, from universities, but also if there's a particular area that they're studying, uh, we like to try and make sure that there's a mutual benefit in terms of how people engage with our work. So students can get involved and get some experience of particular services and also bring a lot of value to our clients that way um, as well. So there's there's a whole range of different things that um, people can do. On our website, people can find out more information as well about what we've got going on. But the other big thing that I would say, and this doesn't just apply to, um, to students, I guess, but actually for us, we're a pretty small charity in Birmingham and we're trying to raise our profile and just sharing the word and spreading the word and keeping the awareness that we're still out there I mean taking on board all the points that made about the fantastic amount of support there is for the NHS at the moment but also that we're still here we're still going we're still operating and supporting vulnerable people so you know people sharing on their social helping us with sort of marketing and things like that we're we're all a bit luddite here in terms of social media so you know people getting involved in that way as well is fantastic so support with somebody picking up social media for you, taking a message out there, communication would be beneficial for you. Excellent. Tina, what support would you think you could take on board now and moving forward from students, specifically BCU, but I think that's a general question. We've got a few universities in the region. What would you like? What would you ask be at the moment? Uh, well, we've got very good relationships with the university and I'm a BCU alumni myself. So, um, um, at the moment, I think um, three main areas, were, well, that, that Carly has really covered, one being about fundraising. So, you know, check out our charity website, see how you can join in, because, because students can do things in, you know, imaginative ways and en masse. Um, also, we've got a number of volunteering initiatives that we're doing online at the moment. For example, we were about to launch our um, volunteer um, bereavement hubs out into the community uh, in May. Um, because of COVID, we were going to suspend that because it's also being done in partnership with Birmingham City Council. They wanted us to continue. Um, and particularly as COVID is creating bereavement, not only because of people uh, because of death, but because of the change that it creates and the anxiety in the yeah. world. So um, we will be recruiting volunteer bereavement support workers. Um, we've got um, a service called Support at Home that has, you know, that group of volunteers speaks about 13 different languages between them. So uh, universities are really good places for people with multi-language skills. Um, so we are constantly recruiting for that. So at the moment, those volunteers aren't visiting in the own, their own home. But what we're finding is the loneliness that COVID is creating means that our volunteers are probably simply used for a chat, a chat about what's happening to them, what they're worried about. Um, and if that chat can be in your own language, it is so much more comforting 
than trying to interpret or, or speak across, across the boundary of language, particularly if we haven't got face-to-face -face contact. Um, so I certainly think it's worth students con contacting us because volunteering hasn't dried up. And there are a number of our volunteers um, that um, will be self-isolating anyway. So, uh, you know, new pools of volunteers are always welcome. And I think what Carly said, I would really like, you know, anybody with sort of marketing or artistic capabilities um, to even be able to paint the picture of what's happening right now and use those pictures in some of our marketing material. Or even if they want to do a project that is about creating a film, but, you know, sketching and drawing and creating those live images. So there's loads and loads of creativity that students can bring to our work. I like the idea of that and some good comments. If we just jump at some of the comments from the, the audience, which are flying up now. Vicky Rowles uh, makes a point that it would be uh, good to mention pro bono support from businesses, professional people that have skill sets and things like that, that may come forward doing that. Um, Christine from uh, Woolley from Steps to Work and Starting Point Recruitment. Great point. My study son in biomechanical science, desperate to help with unis. Unis uh, sticking to syllabus rather than relaxing, allowing them to go out and help. Final year students and things like that would like to help with that. I think jumping on my personal perspective, I had uh, lunch with Philip Plowden probably 12 months ago, and his mindset was that every student that attended BCU would have the opportunity of giving charitable support. You know, um, and his mindset was that every student would take advantage of that. You would. The next one is from Hannah. You have talked about collaboration being strong at the moment. Do you think that in the future charities will look to build lasting external partnerships rather than uh, develop new uh, services, particularly if finances are stretched? I think let's pick up on the point about sharing, you know, collaboration and things like that. Tim, would you like to hang? Uh, handle that question for us collaboration yeah, uh, within charities yeah so in, in in terms of collaboration between charities or are you talking about collaboration with uh with, with the the wider business community no i think we're going to do both let's just have your personal perspective as a business leader and as a charity leader on the collaboration between charities and with businesses and then yeah, i'm okay. going to ask the same question to toby but specifically yeah, driven from the charitable angle yeah, I think for, personally, um, my business, I've always supported charities. Um, I think, and, and there's, there's lots of reasons why. And I think the more people, more business leaders I speak to um, when they're wanting to support a charity, for instance, Love Brum, they all have different requirements. They all have different wants. And I think, um, I think from, uh, from, from, certainly from Love Brum's point of view, um, we, we are wanting to build more relationships with, with the corporate world. Uh, we we wouldn't exist without the corporate sponsorship. And that's as simple as that. Um, so so, but it's actually interesting what what people want as business leaders from from a charity. Some some just want the the promotion. Some want to get their staff engaged. Some want um, the sort of the feel good factor. There are so many reasons why business deals with uh, and engages with charity. Um, my personal point of view, uh, the reason why I've always done it is because I think it it creates a good employer brand locally. I think it makes yeah. the business look. A nice business to work for uh, we're a family business and so charity is very much part of you know the family values that exist within the business 
Um, but of course, that might be very different to the person that runs JLR, you know, and, and there are so many different reasons why businesses get involved. But I think in terms of collaboration, I actually think this COVID situation in some regard is going to actually help more people get involved in charity. Um, I think charity, the third sector has had, it's had a rough ride, I think, really, over the last 25, 30 years. And, and, and I think probably now there's more desire to help charities than ever before. Um, oh, and I think, yeah. I can't remember the point earlier, I think it was Toby, about local. I think, you know, they're the saying charity starts at home. And I think very much, you know, the charity should start here in Birmingham before. But of course, that is my personal point of view. Um, everyone has a pet charity. Everyone has a, you know, based on their their sort of their their life experiences. But I think helping and collaboration with charities in in the in the city is uh, well, that's what Love Brum is all about. Yeah, brilliant. And then just picking up on that, the, there's a lot of comments coming through on the live stream, all very positive and things like that. But Toby, the question of collaboration of charities, is there going to be more collaboration of charities? after this and what do you think your personal opinion is that's going to look like so one of the things that's always said about the charity sector is um that we are far behind the curve of the commercial sector when it comes to mergers takeovers etc and therefore there is an inherent inefficiency of having so many charities all looking to fundraise for core costs etc it's not quite as easy as it sounds, but I do think that boards and CEOs and directors of the charity sector can be quite conservative in terms of taking these opportunities. Um, so, you know, it's easy for me to say because there's no other children's hospice uh, in the West Midlands region. And ACONS already is a, essentially a sort of has a lot of the characteristics of a post-merger organization in a hospice context because we support three very large hospices from a single head office and support structure but you know if i was pulling tina's leg and i know there's no one listening but you know perhaps in three years time you know will the board look back on the covid 19 crisis and the um uh the the, the the joint venture that you've been talking about in terms of sharing staffing resources and etc um will that be seen as a precursor to having a single birmingham hospice charity or you know greater birmingham hospice charity that you're all completely merged and uh you know it, it certainly would the, the conditions are in place for the charity sector to do much more agile merging or back office systems joint ventures letting services go recognizing that things are very different developing new services but never underestimate the conservatism in the voluntary sector if you like that sometimes it can be a very change you know we can be very inflexible in the best of times but we can be very conservative and inflexible as institutions as well Fabulous answer, fabulous answer. Uh, Tina, let's talk about Hobbs. Hobbs has been on the uh, on the go for a while, hasn't it? You've been looking at it for about 18 months or so. And speaking to you earlier, you're saying that during the, these unprecedented sort of times and situation, it's come together quicker. So what would have taken a, a considerable amount of time has suddenly been condensed and the resources have come together quickly. 
So a little bit of an update about OBS. We've already done that, but interesting just the, the coming together, the collaboration, how that's impacted under the current situation. And your, your thoughts around collaboration of charities moving forward? Yeah, so with, with Hobbs, I think um, the big thing there is, I'd said, because we, we, it, this has been, it's part of a bigger plan that's been 18 months in the making. Um, and that has been about collaboration across the hospices, ambulance service, the 111 service, um, and partnership with the NHS. So um, the fact that it was a, a sort of concept that everyone was familiar with was really helpful and the fact that relationships were in place. I think the thing that really accelerated it is everyone involved was, was focused on one thing and that was making things better for people affected and making sure we did something quickly. Um, and it was just a simple case of JDI, just do it. Yeah. Um, and, and in a crisis, it sometimes takes a crisis for you to forget the organisational boundaries. And just do what needs to be done for the person that isn't getting the help they need right now in this awful, awful crisis. Um, and it's the compassion of all that, the teams involved, um, the really drove everybody with a shared vision to get something set up quickly to help people. So I think the, the focus of these charities on the individual was absolutely central to this. Now, what will come out afterwards, I think the, the, the board, uh, the leadership team at Birmingham St Mary's Hospital are very forward thinking. So I think um, we don't use the word merger because I think that's an old world. That, that, that's something of the old world. I think you'll see charities coming together with other sectors very, very quickly now. Um, and I think what used to be a merger may look very different now. Um, for instance, Hobbs is very much working with the NHS as well. And we've got staff on the front line working with the NHS on the front line. Um, you also talked about um, working with, with businesses. And, and one thing that's really helped in this, this crisis was uh, the corporate world. So as well as massively, massively supportive uh, uh, in regards of, of fundraising, has been the whole debacle about protective, personal protective equipment. Um, and the fact that social media can be used to agitate about that. And I think you were one of the ones that started putting suppliers in front of me, Paul. And actually yeah. that meant I've been able to feed those suppliers. Now we're too small to start ordering 500,000 masks from China, but I've been able to feed that into proper procurement uh, processes. So that there's a better chance of the NHS having a bigger pool of suppliers to draw upon. And that's really the, the value of, of, of collaboration across sectors, like not only the NHS, not only charities, but also with the corporate sector. And I see that type of collaboration being much stronger in the future. Fantastic. Carly, I'm going to restructure the question slightly. If you had a magic wand after this, what would your collaboration of charities and support look like for your charity? Oh, wow. Save the most difficult question for me, for. Of course. <laughs> um, I think... You know, in terms of collaboration, um, 
I, th I think we were getting there anyway to an extent. I think the magic wand element where we struggle around collaboration is uh, that back office stuff. And I think if we could share more of those back office resources as charities, um, that that would be the bit that, that would be transformative potentially. I think the point that I would like to make uh, potentially that might be slightly controversial, I don't know, but I think sometimes what happens with collaboration as well is that there's a huge, there is actually, charities are generally very good at collaboration and they do it very well a lot of the time. But sometimes where that part where we, we need to share resources from a back office point of view can fall apart is also because of, uh, commissioning structures and contracts and awards like that which which pitch us against each other and put us into a competitive market which doesn't feel very natural for us and we don't really know what to do with that and we find that quite challenging um, and I think I think we do have a lot to learn from the commercial sector as well and we've been saying at Cypher for a long time that the commercial sector can give us solutions sometimes a lot more quickly and open doors up for us a lot more quickly than us as, as the specialists in our own areas you know they look at things differently they do things differently so again taking my magic wand I'd want that commercial sector public sector voluntary sector you know collaboration to knit together in a much more integrated way than it currently does so let's pick up on Vicky's comment about any professional people out there with skills and things like that stepping forward now while they've got the opportunity to support charities, which is good. One of the things that you did mention was the uh, big Bromley uh, camp out. And uh, I think it's hot off the press that you're doing an overnight sleep out. But PJ Ellis has, has offered to sleep in his potting shed, apparently for two weeks to raise, try and raise a little bit of money. I think I've read it right anyway. <laughs> um, <laughs> so look at look at some of the other questions we've had joe from bcu saying our employability team is fully set up to support volunteers ready and eager to support that channel set up there jimmy uh from bootcamp media has offered during ramadan lots of people are keen to contribute to charities you know jimmy's raising that point interesting from abid um, Abby talks about, about if anybody needs this uh, translated into uh, Urdu or Punjabi, let me know, please. We'll do that. Obviously, all of our languages aren't common. We're a multicultural city. We celebrate that, which is fabulous, but we need to ensure that we communicate to the right level. So, um, okay, a, a quite a hard-hitting question here. Do you expect more charities to close down significantly? restructure over the next few months that's quite a tough question and i'm going to i'm going to pitch that question to you toby do you expect more charities to close down or significantly restructure over the next few months what are your thoughts uh, yes absolutely um in the hospice sector one of the things that gave urgency to the call for nhs support was the fact that it was known that there were certain hospices who wouldn't have been able to make April payroll. Um, and uh, there are lots of charities in the UK. I mean, there are, the great majority of UK charities are very small. Um, so I think there will be, uh, there will be lots of closures and then the restructuring will happen 
next and then perhaps the joint ventures collaborations mergers would happen last yeah okay but i think we you know i'm sure it's the same in the commercial sector so tim might you know can speak from both perspective but there are too many unknowns about how we get through the acute stage of the emergency to make it too valuable to try and plan in too too far in detail about what does this mean for the next year or two but i think the um so i think that all of us need to conserve our energy on helping meet our missions as best we can over this emergency for healthcare charities like acorns and st mary's to some to support the nhs to be part of this wider emergency effort and then hopefully to then contribute positively to what kind of society we want to be because i just want to say one more thing about a question you asked a long time ago about what could bcu students contribute and yeah. i think young people i think there's a really important thing and we, we don't own this as the voluntary sector but we we obviously lots of people with values work in the voluntary sector or support the voluntary sector it is where people come and express their beliefs by supporting charities or working for charities and i think there's a big big question about do we want the world to go back to how it was you know polluted inequitable um no shelter for homeless people to spend the night off the streets and i think that um young young you know it is important that no one has a big role to play in shaping the future of the world than society's younger people and i and i, I personally really hope that some of the idealism and some of the you know the, the pictures and the realization that we can breathe clean airs in our cities and we can see the mountains from the punjab to the high himalaya you know for the first time in 40 years etc it, it informs that uh thing about what kind of world we can be i think that uh, you're talking about india and you're talking about the distance and seeing the mountains and things like that for the first time it's wonderful totally okay blood this week and went into town for the first time and there wasn't a piece of litter there wasn't anybody about and the sky was blue now actually the sky was blue because i could see the sky and I, and i just it just seemed slightly different as if everything was cleaner from a personal perspective andy dawson steps in to say you know that his company can offer support leadership management teams on resilience and things like that lots of people are making the point about ramadan now uh, is the time for giving to ask for the the anything that you need there we've got pj ellis again confirming that he's going to sleep in a potting shed for two weeks employability uk has set up to help volunteering would really like to do that lots of messages about support communities from that jennifer from the lep He's saying, what support can the LEP give us? What would be the ask from the LEP? We'll take that away from here. We'll collate some questions, some asks from the LEP. Tina, the specific questions for you. You've answered those. There's uh, questions around students, something called TikTok. I don't imagine that as many of the people on the panel understand what TikTok is. But somebody's yeah, raising the... <laughs> 
<laughs> Somebody's raising a point about young minds with technology. Can they come up with some good, innovative ideas about how the charities can take on raising things there? Bobby's saying that, uh, no, give all the staff that work in our charity in the hospices, panellists and local charities, be proud of them. I think, generally speaking, we've commented about that. We've all passed on comment about our staff, our people that we work with, the volunteers and everything else like that. We've all raised our thanks, particularly to the NHS people. Keith Rizal is saying unique opportunity to negotiate new contracts between businesses, people and society. Let's not waste it. Actually, yeah, good idea. Do we go back to us, you know, to whoever? Should charities be paying any costs? Should we be paying refuse costs? Should we be paying, you know, business rates? Should we have preferable, you know, things like that? Maybe we can challenge Ian Wood representing, you know, the local for that. Interesting to see what the LEP can do for us. <coughs> A question from Max. Near Star Media. Near Star Media was the guys who put our video together for the fire walk, which completely made me look like a buffoon uh, over that. But hey, it was for charity. If anybody uh, want to dress up as a tiger and walk around in a onesie publicly, that's good for your career attributions. <laughs> well, the question from Max is, when lockdown finally uh, gives up, what can charities learn from this? Have we, have we clearly defined what we've learned from this? I don't think we have. I'm going to ask, I'm, I'm not going to leave Carly alone. I'm going to ask Tina. Tina, what can we learn from this? What have we learned already? You talked about agility. You talked about collaboration. What else have we learned? I think we've learned the capacity of human beings to really pull together for each other. Um, it, it's just been absolutely incredible. We have staff, because our staff are working on the front line with patients who have COVID, um, we have a number of staff that are going off sick on a regular basis. And then after their period of time, even if they've tested positive, have their period of time um, in, in isolation, then they come back again. Um, and we don't know whether you can catch this, this uh, illness, this, this virus a second time round. But it's, it's the way that staff, whether frontline, backline, working with others, have overcome that fear. Um, if this is a visible killer, because it, it has killed, mm. we, we would probably be even more terrified of it. Um, it's invisible, so you don't know where it is. So in a way, that makes it, that, I'm contradicting myself, it makes it even more terrifying. But the fact that I have, we have staff and pregnant staff, they've read the guidelines, they've done their own self risk assessment right out there in the front line caring for others um, and being prepared actually not questioning things the thing that I've really learned is the fact that we've set things up like hobs like um, education webinars we educate we did education for 40 GPs last week um, on on having conversations around death dying and loss um, and those GPs now will be able to better have conversations with their patients. We, we educated more GPs in one week than we had done in a whole month. And why we hadn't done that before, I don't know. And I think yeah. it's got to be the confidence of ideas to put them into action. And I think we will 
take away from this an idea and then we then would need to say okay how would we break through that idea more quickly if this is a crisis what would we do with that idea um because we have to have a different way we we have broken through social media we've broken through reaching more people um and connecting uh, we've, we've broken through and you talk about collaboration you know we're breaking through now looking at how can we share back office staff more now how can we make more of, of of public giving by bringing together elements of our charities so we're going to be doing much more of that and and it's looking at how can we how can we take those ideas forward without the complexities that governance and bureaucracy or I suppose thinking of self rather than service can get in the way. Brilliant, brilliant. Toby, I'm going to ask you a slightly different question. With your experience about emergency planning and things like that, we've clearly not had the foresight to look at a pandemic uh, around a virus or anything else like that. We've not had enough PPE equipment and everything else like that. So what are we going to learn from this? And, uh, and as a leader of uh, a nationally recognised charity, what would your advice be to emergency planning, one, and two, to the government about the next pandemic, about the next virus or the flu that's around the corner? What's your advice? Turn your microphone on for us, Toby, please. Um, there was a lot of, uh, there was quite a lot of investment in contingency planning um, in around 2005, 2006 when they were really desperately worried about avian influenza. It was uh, H2N1, I think, was the influenza strain. Um, and, and there was uh, pandemic planning that made its way uh, all the way around the world. And funny enough, I read an article just this morning before work from yesterday's FT magazine about why is it that it, and it, it, there was a, there was a phrase, and it's something to do with our inherent optimism, is that we refuse to believe it. We, after a few years, we forget thinking that bad things can happen. So we carry on building on floodplains, and people carry on, you know, New Orleans repopulates, and so on and so on. Um, so I think it was, I, th I think it was just a. Uh, I do think there was a financial element to this. Um, so I think the what I understand is that the NHS procedures were quite up to date as regards uh, war gaming for pandemic, but that there was but that they hadn't kept the physical stocks of PPE hadn't been replenished as the initial ones had fallen out of date. So there was a simple financial question, and I, although. I would say that it is important to recognize that the planning for uh, the pandemic planning was all based around it being an influenza, which would not, which would have had much less PPE requirements than for a coronavirus for quite technical reasons. So I think what you'll see is for the next 10 years, assuming this all ends let's hope there's an end to this with a vaccine or something in 18 months time two years time 
normally what you would expect to see is a big investment for about 10 years and then everyone forgets about it and it starts to tail off and then something else might happen or there might be another pandemic or there might not be another pandemic so okay uh, it's uh, the simple short answer is it's human nature we plan and prepare for a little bit and then real life comes along thank you thank you very much for that. just running through some things benjamin i think that we've uh, pretty much answered your question to that keith thank you for that john duna happy to give some help and support and things like that we'll take your details i'm conscious of the time now that, that, that we're rolling on and i genuinely think with the panel that we've got we could be talking all afternoon and things like that adding sort of value into things like that but we've all especially you all would have got day jobs so just by means of wrapping it up if we can give each one of you a couple of three minutes each for your last message just put across whatever it can be is entirely up to yourselves but prior to doing that, I just want to thank everybody for the contributions today. I think it's been excellent. The amount of people that we've had viewing, the comments that we've had has been excellent. I think it's definitely been worthwhile. So from me, as chairman of downtown in Birmingham, me knowing you all personally, it's a, it's a thank you massively for that. Tim, do you want to start off with a couple of minutes? Yeah, now you've uh, got air time and an audience just to round up for us, please. Yeah, really enjoyed uh, being part of the panel, so I appreciate that. Uh, if you need me to partake in any in the future, please don't hesitate. Um, yes, in terms of, um, well, Lubrum, um, I don't know if you noticed on social media, I'm, uh, I used to be a DJ 25 years ago. Um, since since then, vinyl records have disappeared and come back again. Um, I've... Uh, been I've been given some decks, um, and on Saturday night I'm going to do a a virtual DJ set, um, much to the annoyance of my neighbours, no doubt. Um, <laughs> if anybody wants to join in um, and join on Facebook Live, um, please do come along. Uh, but on a serious note, uh, anybody that's you know goes for for all the charities really, anybody that's that feels like you know during the lockdown period they can raise some money for charities. It's amazing what people and how much people can raise for doing not a lot, you know, uh, other than just the desire and the, and the, the motivation and the effort to go and raise some money. Um, PJ last week uh, walked on his treadmill for 12 hours, um, interviewed various different people and got people involved. I think raised nearly six, 7,000 pounds. So it just shows what can be done. Um, so anybody out there wanting to, to raise some money for Lubrum or any of the other charities whilst you sat at home and locked up, um, knows to get your thinking cap on and being creative. Brilliant, Thank you. brilliant. Thank you. Carly, last few words. Thank you, and thanks very much. Um, it's been a real privilege, actually, to be with such uh, wonderful panellists too, so thank you. Um, I would just like to say a couple of things to sum up. The first thing um, is just what an incredible uh, group of people we share our communities and our society with. Um, Cyberfire side has faced immense difficulty over the past few weeks and we have seen from uh, the general public such a huge outpouring of nothing short of big love for what we do and how we carry on. So I just want to take the opportunity to say a massive thanks for that because this is such a difficult time and we, we kind of thought 
we might get a little bit left by the wayside and that certainly hasn't happened. People have really got behind us and we appreciate that so much. Um, and then the second thing I want to do is do a big plug for our Big Brummy camp out, which is on the 8th of May, so two weeks away. We're asking people to camp out in their gardens, build a den in their lounge, uh, I don't know, set something up on your balcony if you're in a flat. Um, it's £5 minimum donation. Uh, the resource packs get downloaded when uh, you sign up, which is on our website, cyberfireside.co.uk. Uh, we've had a huge amount of support from places like The Wilderness, who are doing recipes for us, Sarhole Mill, Millennium Point are doing stargazing packs for us. We've got bunting, we've got posters. It's all happening. There's going to be a Spotify playlist, live stream of comedy. Uh, so it will be a fantastic evening. Uh, and Jess Phillips is getting behind us as well and a few other names. So look out for them as they, they sort of uh, come along. So just a plea, really, um, it's part of, we're aiming to raise around about £50,000 part of our emergency campaign. We do have a big income deficit, as I'm sure the other panellists will share. So please just get behind us and it's cyberfireside.co.uk to go and sign up. Thanks very much. Brilliant. Thank you, Carly. Tina, last few words from you. Okay, you got me. You got me wanting to camp out in my garden now, <laughs> so I'll have a go at that. Um, yeah, I think I think it is. It's it is. Everyone's saying funding is the scary thing. You know, they say cash is king, um, but that's because it makes a difference to people. Uh, we we can't furlough our staff because they're out there on the front line. So I would say I'm I'm looking at what the um, what, what what the participants are saying and about Ramadan Ramadan being the time of giving so our website is birminghamhospice.org.uk so if you you would like to give to Birmingham St Mary's Hospice then please do um, you're all saying ask and we will give <coughs> so your money will be so well spent on making a difference to people and um very very grateful during this very you know this holy month as well it, it means a lot to have your support and have and have invitations to ask and i think it's like carly said the support of the public at the moment and, and our rich diverse communities is it just makes such a difference you would not know how much it means to us so what i'll say is is to you know the rest of the panelists thank you it's been a it really has been a privilege being on the panel with you and for inviting me to be part of this call um it's been an opportunity to say don't forget us in this crisis and a plug for my colleagues in the nhs because we work so closely with them isn't it a shame that it takes a crisis for us to really value uh nhs and all the key workers across care homes hospices anywhere at all and if something comes out of this may that valuing of people that are caring for others really be at the forefront of people's minds so thank you thank you, thank you. toby over to you last few words um we have uh, we have an event called the big uh quiz on next friday may the first between 7.30 and 9 o'clock. So I've heard a lot about these Zoom drinks meetings uh, that are going on. And if, uh, if, if Tim, if you're not spinning your decks and if Tim is not in your garden, or Carly, you're uh, preparing for the sleep out the next week. And, uh, um, and I know you'll be free, Paul, because you would have been at an award dinner that's canceled. <laughs> um, the, 
uh, it, it would be really lovely if, if you folks out here, who are such a representative group, I've had a look through the attendees, if you could sign up and uh, have a bit of fun and get some friends together. It's a one and a half hour team quiz game in aid of acorns. But I think wider speaking, you know, we're, we're, we feel very privileged to be part of the Birmingham and wider West Midlands community. People are incredibly generous um, and have already shown that to acorns as to other charities in lots of ways. And, um, it is going to be a marathon and not a sprint, but I think that this has really brought out the best in most of the community. And uh, it's a privilege to uh, to see. On a very human level, I'd just like to say thanks a lot. I've seen some, uh, you know, some names uh, through the participant list of people I haven't spoken to for quite a long time and seen and It's actually really nice to, uh, it's quite lonely, isn't it? Just that. <laughs> Uh, on one screen and writing emails and it's this is like it's really nice to see so many of you again and uh, you know long may the real end to this quickly may it come and keep well till then everyone thank you just the uh, the last few uh, comments from me so many charities in Birmingham so many charities in the surrounding area we're all working hard it's pleasing to see the collaboration of the charities coming together that's going out that's offering support the mindset that we've had during this lockdown i think tim just picking up on your one point we're actually looking at ourselves now aren't we we're spending time with our family and our friends getting to know people getting to understand the situation that we're in we're looking at running our businesses running our lives virtually via zoom zoom suddenly entered into everybody's life with things like that looking at virtual opportunities and things like that and on that point there are virtual opportunities to support all the charities we will do something again going forward. There's another incentive, there's a number of incentives that are being created through the city. Invite students to come up with new innovative ideas to support us. And I just want to say that uh, I have been Paul Cadman, I am still Paul Cadman, Chair of Downtown in Business, uh, involved in all of the charities that are in front of us. It's been an absolute privilege. And I want to thank each and one of you on the panel for taking out your valuable time and for everybody for tuning in today. This will be recorded and sent out within about a week, uh, maybe an edited version because for an hour's sort of uh, an hour's uh, event, we've gone into almost an hour and a half. So on that point, wishing you all thank you, stay safe, stay healthy, and hopefully we'll see each other very soon at the end of this. Thank you. Thank you. Cheers all. Cheers. Thanks so much. Thank you. Bye-bye.